the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah and i'm an india and we are your theory doctors Welcome back. Hello, hope you've all been well. Um, this week we are continuing our discussion from last week on sport, sport performance, bodies, uh, identity, class, capitalism. Uh, all the things. All the things. Um, last week, uh, if you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, it might be worth going and listening to that first, uh, where we talk about Castasimania specifically. Uh, and uh, what is deemed to be an unfair advantage uh, in terms of one's physicality, one's body, uh, and how that affects uh, the relationship between skill and labour that uh, that uh, constitutes one's professional identity as, as an athlete. What are we focusing on today, Hannah? Today we're looking specifically at Football, yeah. uh, not the American kind, yes. although it will probably come up. Yes. Uh, soccer. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm unfortunately using football as the terminology. Normally, I, normally I refuse because the entire world uses it, and only America uses soccer. It is because the entire world uses the word yes. football, um, but we're talking specifically about British teams. Yes. Um, and then we'll look specifically at a number of players, yeah. um, some of whom are British and some of whom are not, which I think yes. is a key distinction. Yeah. We'll also talk about a British, a British cricket player, yeah. um, British Pakistani cricket player, yeah. um, who has kind of he's quite a prominent, very popular yeah. uh, cricket player here yeah. because the, the yeah. Cricket World Cup is happening here in the UK. Um, we're sort of linking yeah. uh, some contemporary. Uh, conversations and I guess the focus today is uh, on sport uh, uh, carrying on from last week but specifically sport and Islam and uh, if if we were querying the definitions of success last week uh, in other words you know what is too good how how does one how is one successful how how is success on a sports field determined Today we are thinking about how success changes the relationship between spectator and athlete, mm-hmm. and what that might, what relationship that 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 might have to wider social political forces such as racism, Islamophobia, sexism, homophobia, and so on. Yeah. Uh, do you want to give a bit of the context of the the people we are talking about today? Bit of context, so. Uh, I find football in Europe to be yes. just confusing, both mechanically, but yeah. also like economically and yeah. and bureaucratically yeah. bizarre. There are a huge number of football leagues, yeah. and there are leagues that cross national boundaries. Yes. There are national specific leagues, yes. and the teams that play, yeah. play in all the leagues. Yeah. But 
Not always. And there's words like relegation, and I don't really know what that means specifically. But from what I can gather, what happened last week was Liverpool Football Club won the Champions League. And they won the Champions League. What was unusual about it, and I come at this knowing zero about how any of this works, but I find it so bizarre. They they were playing against another British team, Tottenham Hotspurs. Uh, which I find hilarious that that is their name. Um, And what was weird about it was normally English teams don't win the Champions League because the Champions League is a Europe-wide league. And it's kind of the, the second most important championship after the Premier League, which is the English only league. Does any of this make sense to you? It doesn't make sense to me. Anyway, two English teams played in the Europe-wide championship. Yes. Which was... In the finals. In the finals, which was odd in itself. Yes. Liverpool winning was especially odd because they don't normally in the Champions League. Like the... They have won it six times. And they're quite an old, established wealthy team they're always sort of in it yeah in amongst it yeah. as british yes. pundits would say yes. but but often they do the they do what what is kind of considered a very british thing which is like choke at the end yeah. which is a sort of yeah. like yeah. trope here yeah. i find it all very strange and confusing um it defies logic on a number of levels but what's really interesting for us is Liverpool won. Yes. And Liverpool won, and part of their win was this this very charismatic, very popular figure who is sort of seen as the kind of spiritual, physical, athletic leader of the team, which is an Egyptian player named Mo Salah. And he is like... He's pretty Muslim, isn't he? He prays on the field. He's very open about his personal life, his faith, his practice, his family. He's very open about his background. And he's quite a nice dude. Yes. Like, people quite like him. And, and this, this season in particular, he's had a very strong season. And uh, coming up to the end of the season now, people... There have been a number of commentaries in, in various media sources which credit Mo Salah's performance and his, you know, his personhood uh, as helping to bridge communities and challenge Islamophobia in football. Um, Mo Salah is not the only example of this. Uh, two others that spring to mind. Uh, you mentioned the Cricket World Cup in passing. Moin Ali, who's a... Who's a uh, a a British Pakistani cricketer who plays for England um, and is also Muslim uh, and is is another public uh, Muslim athlete, public British Muslim athlete Uh, and the third one perhaps more important than either of these two is Dathlik Mo Farah who is Sir Mo Farah now, world record, world Olympic gold medalist, world record Holder in, in, in various various uh, disciplines, uh, middle to long distance runner, uh, 
British Somali and another public public Muslim athlete. And and a refugee. And a refugee. Uh, and it is interesting to think about the mechanism that lies behind these figures who are seen to be uniting communities and the implication being through their performance as athletes uh, they are challenging systemic uh, forces of prejudice such as racism or, or Islamophobia. And I guess one of the central questions that I'm interested in particularly is going back to what we were talking about last week about skill and labour which is uh, do we think that they are if, if, if the diagnosis is right that public public Muslim figures uh, and public Muslim athletes particularly are able through their performance to challenge Islamophobia are they doing it through their performance as athletes or are they doing it through their success as athletes in other words would Mo Salah be as transcending a figure as he is if he wasn't as good as he was mm -hmm. similarly for Mo, Mo Farah there's another angle to this which or another example of this which isn't to do with sport and I'm thinking of Nadia Hussain mm -hmm. in, in the Great British Bake Off mm -hmm. uh, who you know the program is called the Great British Bake Off a couple of years ago Nadia Hussain British Bangladeshi woman Muslim woman who wears a hijab uh, won and has since uh, uh, had a, a very successful media career in, in cookery programs particularly uh, and her win was seen in some quarters as uh, another uh, another example of this sort of publicly successful figures who are, are well liked mm -hmm. and Muslim and are therefore able to break down boundaries and challenging prejudices and, and, and ignorance and so on and again it comes back to would why do we need success whether it's success in athletics and sport whether it's success in, in reality TV shows why do we need success as a criteria to challenge prejudice presumably very few of us I'd like to think really think that any of these people are less valid as members of British society if they didn't win mm -hmm. so what exactly is the mechanism what is the sort of logic of this connection between success as an athlete or a, or a public figure and the ability to to heal divides and, and unite communities yeah I mean I think I guess my question is to problematize that last statement that they are in fact healing divided yeah. communities I wonder I mean all we live in a capitalist society uh, the Great British Bake Off is first and foremost a, uh, a business it's yes. a profit-making venture uh, which we talked about on a yes. Great British Bake Off episode yes um, and similarly football clubs and uh, cricket teams are you know they're vehicles by which profit is generated yes. for an, a small number of people yes. football clubs in particular are extremely lucrative ventures yes. many of them are owned by uh, very wealthy men yeah around the world yeah um, and they they you know churned through a ton yeah. of money yeah 
and essentially that's what they do um they also provide a a certain form of entertainment a a form of entertainment that is also about identity construction for the many fans that support the teams and one of the key things about Mo Salah is his connection to Liverpool yes in particular and Liverpool parts of the UK have a kind of I think more um, sort of overt histories around uh, race, around questions of integration, multiculturalism, yeah. assimilation, diversity, inequality, yeah. racism, the sort of post-colonial legacies of the British Empire. Uh, Liverpool, London, Manchester all have long histories of uh, dealing with race and the post-colonial legacy and race in the UK. Mm. Um and some really ugly, mm. ugly racism mm. associated with Liverpool and the surrounding mm. areas. Um, not just Liverpool, of mm. course, mm. but one of the interesting things about Mo Salah is his connection to Liverpool itself and the city and sort of um, the relationship between Islam, Muslim populations and Muslim communities in the area and what is seen to be a mm. really divided mm. place. Um, it, I would question, I would question the kind of, just thinking of him as a person Mm. and also thinking of him as a commodity, as a Muslim to be consumed, as a sort of vessel Mm. of, of practices and, uh, cultural representation. Like he, Mm -hmm. he holds a sort of representation of Islam and the practice Mm. of Islam, within himself that isn't consumed by mm. Mm. his fans. Mm. And similarly with Nadia, mm. um, I think even more specifically because you watch the foods that she cooks, where she talks about the recipes that incorporate her grandmother's recipes and then incorporate mm. Bangladeshi mm. knowledge of cooking mm. and mm. ingredients and spices. Yeah. And then to watch the food, she makes it, and then watch it be consumed by Paul Hollywood and Mary Berry. Yeah. Is a, there's a visceral aspect mm of watching her her Muslim hood, as it were, be consumed by white British people and enjoyed. There's something very capitalist about that. Oh, absolutely. But I guess, and, and that's, a, that's a really good phrase to pick up on, because with, if the choice was between capitalist consumption and not, then that's in a sense an easier choice to make for us. But what's interesting is is that last phrase you used, to watch watch either Nadir Hussain or Mo Salah or Mo Farah have their Muslim consumed and enjoyed. The choice is between their Muslim consumed and enjoyed and Muslim consumed and demonized. Yeah. Right? That that's really the choice we're talking about. Yeah. And what's what's fascinating is I'm completely with you in terms of the need to critique and question this narrative of, of unifying and transcending communities. Uh, but we also need to make space perhaps for the symbolic importance of a community who is used to watching their personhood consumed and demonized. Yeah. To see for a change that their, their, commu- their community, their personhood 
can be enjoyed as a commodity. Yeah. And is that enjoyment then dependent on success? Where, where, what is the the mechanism? What is the um, what is the logical process that is that allows for Nadia Hussein's food to be enjoyed, mm-hmm. or Mosala's goal-scoring prowess to be enjoyed? Is it the skill and success that is the key feature? And if it is, because I think it, in in this narrative it it perhaps is. Yeah then is there a way to acknowledge the the symbolic importance of being able to watch Muslimhood being valued on the one hand and not allowing ourselves to lapse into a kind of good minority, bad minority yeah. uh, rhetoric where we, we are willing to accept minorities, we are willing to accept refugees and immigrants as long as they are successful in our capitalist economy. Yeah. If they're engineers yeah. or they're doctors, yes. that we're willing to be um, treated by a Muslim doctor if yeah. they're very good at it, yes. but we aren't willing necessarily to countenance the idea of uh, Muslim working class. Yes. Yeah. Or even a Muslim or someone who's on benefits and happens yeah. to be Muslim. Yeah, we're disabled. Disabled, yeah. Disabled, that means that someone can't work in the way that we think yeah. they should be yeah. able to, yeah. right? These kinds of yeah. assumptions. Yeah, definitely. Um, and there's something about the particular practice, the particular practices that get highlighted. Mm. So, uh, Mo Salah is talked about often in terms of his relationship with his family, yeah. as is Nadia Hussein. Yeah, absolutely. They are situated in terms of... of Families that are mm. highly functioning, uh, that are full of love mm. and care, that are mm. uh, nuclear mm. in in ways that kind mm. of a, a white middle class mm. British audience can understand, and yeah. also a white middle class American audience yeah. can understand. Yeah. Um, and that is seen as being a link, a sort of oh, their family looks just like our family. Yeah. They're not so different from mm. us after all. But there's a very particular set of practices mm. that get highlighted or pulled out. Mm. Uh, Moeen Ali was, he wrote in his column this week about how he gets asked, because Ramadan has just finished, mm. he gets asked often if he fasts mm. during tournaments. Um, and, and he laid out very clearly when he fasts mm. and when he doesn't fast mm. and why, and then what he does mm. uh, to make up for the fast. So he, he doesn't fast on game days, but he does fast on training days. Mm. And... Um, he chooses to move his fasting days later. So he mm. will make up his fasting days when mm. he's playing yeah. matches specifically. Um, but he does fast on training days, which is a huge deal. Yeah. It's a huge thing. Um, mm. And that activity, mm. by highlighting it, by sharing that with people who ask him, mm. you know, he's, he's, he's opening a sort of discussion around the sacrifices he makes for his team, but also um, engaging spiritually with his faith and thinking about, he, he talks about how his fast feeds into his practice as an athlete, how his fast um, is part of his process of, of playing his sport well. You know, there's this whole kind of um, linking up and making connections between his practice of Islam and making it British. Mm-hmm. incorporating it into his play for 
British cricket. And yeah. it's a really interesting process yeah. um, by which certain aspects of his Muslim hood get, yeah. get examined and then sort of celebrated or... Yeah, and, and sort of made safe. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. In, in a way that, again... Uh, the the way in which you or, or we need to diagnose that that co-opting process through which his, his Muslim others is made safe and, and celebrated while acknowledging the importance of that process as well. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Nadia and family in, in passing. Uh, one of the things I've been thinking is uh, the importance of the the insofar as he has a public figure, the importance of her husband, mm-hmm. Abdul, because, and, and this is not to move focus away from her necessarily, but it's to say that given the hegemonic connections that are made between Muslim families generally, South Asian Muslim families in particular, and oppre- oppressive patriarchy, there's a really interesting narrative that is emerging in wh- when we see Abdul and Nadia as a married couple and and parents on screen together mm-hmm. and in the context where Abdul is presented as the supportive husband who is happy that his wife has a flourishing public media career and is presented as someone who is willing and able to look after his kids of course, none of us knows know the truth behind any of that. This I'm, I'm just talking about the media perception and the media presentation of that. And on the one hand, there is the 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 problems of patriarchy and and heteronormativity in in the way the 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 nuclear family is presented, as you as you pointed out. But equally, when the Daily Mail reader, for example, is is only too happy to to uncritically, unquestioningly link Bangladeshi and Pakistani families and honor killings, for example, Mm -hmm. we need to somehow acknowledge the importance of these other forms of Muslimhood that that exist everywhere, Mm -hmm. but in in our current socio-political climate somehow need to be brought front and center on on our TV screens and in our newspapers. Yeah. Yeah, There's. it reminds me of, of um, uh, Riz Ahmed, yeah. uh, who's become a more prominent figure. And, and in, a sa- in a similar way, he's, yeah. his success has made his, his Muslim identity yeah. more legitimate and safe yeah. for a kind of mainstream mm. public audience that is predominantly white yeah and he's he you know he, t- he tells anecdotes and about about being a british muslim yeah. and um a, about how you know they've all been waiting for roles mm. that aren't terrorist number three yeah. and you know plain hijacker number yeah. two and you know yeah. the, the really racist tropes that muslims yeah. get relegated to yeah um but he and he talks about how important the the representations are, yeah, um, because they're key mm. to 
you know, when policies get made. Yeah. They're also key to his experience on the street, yeah. the likelihood that he'll experience a racist attack. Yeah. He's less likely to experience a racist attack if people see him as a human character yeah. on screen, yeah. you know. And it's it's similar with athletes, yeah. but it's so conditional. It's conditional on their success, and it's conditional on a sort of moralizing and kind of restricting a kind of... Yeah. Um, a, restricting their morality to yeah. be... That if it's a sort of Venn diagram, yeah. that in the middle where it's safe Muslimhood, yeah. and and kind of accepted Britishhood yeah. that is predominantly kind of yeah. white in flavor. Yeah, a, a, a success that doesn't isn't too challenging. Mm -hmm. A success where people don't speak out too much against racism. Yeah, uh, you know if. If Morsala was to become too vocal about, I don't know, British foreign policy in the Middle East, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, if Morsala was to be too vocal about British immigration policy and, uh, you know, exploitation of refugees or yeah. denial of access of healthcare to refugees. Yeah, then, detention centres. Yeah. yeah. Then maybe the success would matter less. Yeah. In terms of them being celebrated as as safe Muslims. Yeah, there's a there's a couple of things. So the one of the things uh, as you're talking about uh, the activities and, yeah. and if they become activists yeah. or you know if they yeah. speak out about certain yeah. things, Colin Kaepernick in the yeah. United States is a probably the best example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, has been blacklisted yeah. in the NFL for yeah. speaking out against uh, speaking out in favor of Black Lives Matter, um, taking a knee during the yeah. national anthem, and speaking yeah. out about uh, police brutality against African Americans thought, specifically. Yeah. Um, and it's a really fascinating ongoing yeah. debate. It's it's connected to Black Lives Matter. Yeah. It's connected to N discussions around the NFL more broadly. Yeah. What NFL is, what they do. Um, but none of these figures that we're talking about do what Colin Kaepernick yeah. has done. Yeah. And if they were to, I suspect that there would be a similar conversation about their role and their place. Yeah. And it would look a lot like discussions yeah. around American athletes yeah. of color as well. Yeah. If and, and there's something also about the individual. So if Colin Kaepernick is talking about structural yeah. inequality, yeah. Yeah. that is his kind of the yeah. he's he has used his platform to talk about structural inequality. Yeah. One of the the kind of things that you know supporters of Mosul and Nadi Hussein and Moin Ali will say is they are kind of you know they're they're making bridges they're healing communities at the level of the individual yeah the they're tackling yeah. prejudice yeah. and bigotry at the level of the individual yeah. they are changing hearts yeah. and minds yeah what they're not doing yeah. is advocating for yeah. rights yeah. and you know at the level of government. Yeah. And I think some of them have done so in various ways. And, yeah. and I think as individuals, there are lots of athletes yeah. and lots of public figures who do intervene in ways that, that they're able to and use yeah. their positions to yeah. do. It's not to, to deny them the agency yeah. to do that. Yeah. I know Moeen Ali has, has spoken out in support of Palestinians yeah. before in various ways. Yeah. Um, but there is a, there's, they have to be so careful yeah. in terms of 
in terms of what they say, how they say yeah. it, in order yeah. to protect themselves yeah. and their communities. There is a. It seems to me, particularly in the context of sport, there's a. Uh, it feeds into particularly racialized tropes of gratitude, mm. right? That you, if if we think so much of the history of sport has been white, powerful men usually paying for and consuming performing black bodies uh, the performing black bodies are able to gain a certain amount of economic privilege through the performance but they always have to be grateful mm-hmm. and Colin Kaepernick is a, is a great example Muhammad Ali was a great example in his time of what happens when the performing black bodies stop being grateful yeah. for the for the quote unquote opportunity they've had and one of the really interesting things across all of the figures that we're talking about today, whether it's Moin Ali, Mo Farah, Nadia Hussain, uh, their success is sometimes by themselves, sometimes by other people, co-opted into a narrative of patriotism yeah. and Britishness that absolutely plugs into the idea of being grateful. Yeah. Like Mo Farah has to be grateful for the chance that Britain has given him mm-hmm. because he's a refugee. Oh, he was a refugee. Yeah. Uh, and his relationship to his country, Britain, is always uh, uh, cast in the light of the generosity and munificence of the great British nation yeah. that allows him to exist and perform and represent it, yeah. as it were. And therefore, any challenge or critique or quote-unquote political point that he makes has to be made in that through that lens. Yeah. Muin Ali in the same the same column where he was talking yeah. about his fast and, yeah. and his his practice during yeah. Ramadan also talked very much because he's been asked about who he supported as a child. Yeah. And he talked about growing up supporting England, yeah. the England cricket yeah. team, but many of his friends supported Pakistan yeah. because they had they had strong roots and family in Pakistan. They would often go back yeah. and visit family in Pakistan. Yeah. And he was kind of an outlier in his community for supporting England. Yeah. But, and he, he writes this big but, hopefully as the links between British-Pakistani communities become stronger in Britain, yeah. more and more diaspora children yeah. will support England. And there yeah. will be this sort of kind of like utopic mm. you know multicultural yeah. diverse yeah. support of the England cricket mm. team mm. that bridges gap mm. you know bridges mm. you know divides mm. and heals mm. you know racial divides and that kind of thing mm. and and then he says and the final thing is but really it doesn't matter who you support it's all about cricket mm. and everyone loving cricket mm. is the most important mm. thing and of course, cricket is this like colonial game that that the English wheeled out to all the yeah. colonies to be yeah. like, here, play our sport with us. We'll beat yeah. you. Yeah. And then the great joke of it was that they didn't always win. Yeah. And it's this very strange, you know, fraught colonial yeah. legacy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a careful construction of words. He. He very, very carefully constructs his position here 
which is one that is sort of denationalized, yeah. deracialized, yeah. puts cricket at the heart of it, yeah. then puts England at the heart yeah. of it, and yeah. then sort of says, you know, yeah. we're all yeah. one. Which is which isn't unlike the narrative of of the persona that Nadia had in Great British Bake Off. Yeah. Right. Like she can, she, she, she you know, there was a, a, a one particular episode where she famously cooks the cod and clementine dish. Yes. That her grandmother designed. Yeah. But in that sort of commodification and enjoyment, it becomes a marker of British multiculturalism. Yeah. Now, that is still better than a marker of British racism. Yeah. Or it's better than a marker of British cultural supremacy. Oh, yeah. But it's still, it's the, the, the narrative of success is the same good immigrant, good minority rhetoric, which exists ultimately to regulate non-white bodies into adopting ideas about how great the nation state is. Yeah. What was key was that dish tasted good. Yeah. Yeah. People really liked it. Yeah. And that had that was ne- a necessary requirement yeah. for this this particular story to work. The dish had to be delicious. It had to bring something more far has to, to win. Yeah. You talked about the grateful Yeah. The grateful uh, behavior, yeah. the practice yeah. of being grateful, and the expression yeah. of being grateful, and then the continuing to succeed because of the yeah. partly because of the yeah. gratefulness. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting. We talked quite a bit before we turned the recorder yeah. on about athletes who are portrayed as not being grateful yeah. or who are morally bankrupt in the use of their success and their newfound economic. Yeah success and yeah. sort of the, the new financial capital yeah. that they have. Yeah. Yeah. And it's specifically around media representation, specific type of media representations of uh, athletes of color. Yeah. Uh, and Raheem Sterling this year has been in the news uh, for, you know, one of the first times coming out and saying that media treatment of him and, and uh, many of his friends and fellow players who are also uh, black British um, players are, you know, treated as, you know, morally bankrupt. That they spend their money um, unwisely. That they waste yeah. it. That they're profligate. That they yeah. throw their wealth around. That they, uh, they don't behave in their personal lives yeah. as they as they should. They should, you know, ideas above their station. Exactly, yeah. and uh. It, Athletes of color in the United States have also been subject to these kinds of criticisms forever, you know. Um, You shouldn't buy your mom a multi-million pound house. Um, You shouldn't wear expensive clothing. You should behave in a sort of of middle class, a white middle class frugal sensibility. Um, And this isn't just athletes. I mean, it was, um, it's often leveled at, people of color yeah. who, you know, um, consume, whether it's cars or handbags or houses or vacations, yeah. Yeah. Um, who are seen to waste yeah. their money yeah. on, you know, a, a BMW yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. you know, it's it's a, a sort of judgment of, of 
cultural practice around yeah. capital and consumption yeah. Yeah. and um, how communities express value and express yeah. express gratitude. Yeah. Um, one of the things that Raheem Sterling said was, mm-hmm. I'm expressing my gratitude for my success because my mom yeah. supported me. Yeah. She took care yeah. of me. She made yeah. huge sacrifices yeah. and she, yeah. she deserves to be a beneficiary yeah. of my wealth. And so yeah. I bought her a house, yeah. the house that I thought she deserved, yeah. a fancy house. Yeah. And the representation of him as being irresponsible yeah. and um, somehow dirty with money, right? Yeah. Super racist yeah. Yeah. tropes. Uh, Following on from that, it is interesting. We, 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 the the Muslim figures we've been talking about, pretty much all of them have were, were born Muslim, mm-hmm. right? Born into Muslim families. It's interesting how historically the the gratitude uh, l- um, argument is deployed against athletes who've converted to Islam. Yeah, Muhammad Ali again being a classic example, but but there are plenty others. Yeah, uh, especially in North America. Uh, where rejection of Christianity, well, well, conversion to Islam is read as a rejection of Christianity, which is reject, which is then read as a rejection of the nation state, yeah, and its white values, and that rejection is is read as ungrateful, right? So, yeah. how dare you benefit from all the opportunities we've given you to perform, and then turn your back against us and go with something else, whether that something else is another religion or another nation or or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it, it's all sort of insidious combi- combinations of consumerism, commodification, religion, race, all designed to maintain the hierarchies between historically the, the rich white people who watch sport versus the the poor people of color who perform yeah and of course that that hierarchy isn't absolute right sport is the 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 uh, audience of 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 most sports cuts across class and, and race and religion as well but historically it has been uh white rich white bodies consuming the performance of poor poor non-white ones yeah uh and the the Connecting it back to our discussion last week about Castasimania, what's interesting is again there is a there is a similar notion of becoming too good. Yes. Right. If 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 the the athlete becomes the the, the non-white athlete becomes too good and too successful and earns too much money, uh, that challenges the hierarchies on which all of this was built. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, non-white athletes who have been involved in doping scandals, for yeah. example, are treated much more harshly. Yeah, yeah. Um, much more harshly. I'm thinking of uh, Marion Jones, for example, um, and her her team. Yeah. Um, you know Barry Bonds as well. Yeah. You know, doping is rife. You know, because yeah. because it is, it is part of the, the yeah. process by yeah. which you achieve greater things than anyone has ever yeah. achieved before yeah. is modification in whatever yeah. form. And when yeah. you throw capital and you throw money yeah. into the yeah. mix yeah. of, you know, it, it makes yeah. perfect sense. Yeah. Um, but black bodies in particular and, and brown bodies are, are policed 
according to a morality yeah. that is much stricter and much more nuanced. Yeah, there, there's a there's it's so I think we are in danger of making it seem simpler than it really is. The, yeah. the complexity of of what can be co-opted and what can't is fascinating, and mm-hmm. is a one can read a trajectory, for example, or, or a contrast between um, someone like Jesse Owens mm-hmm. in, in in the the um, Berlin Olympic Games, which was supposed to be Hitler's yeah. showcase of, of Aryan supremacy, and of course Jesse Owens wins everything and and fatally undermines uh, the Nazi ideology of racial supremacy. Think about the way Jesse Owens' success is is was read at the time versus the Black Power salute yeah. in Mexico City. Uh, as and and, and the, the contrast between those two. Yeah. Because for the hegemonic nation state, be it Britain or America, Jesse Owens is a is a figure who can be appropriated because he is his challenges to capitalist democracy. Yeah. But but the Black Power salute absolutely is. Yeah. Uh, and therefore can't be appropriated in the same way. Yeah. Um, and I think, again, there is a, a rhetoric not just of success, but of success in particular ways. One can't be too successful. And this the success has to be perceived as apolitical in, in, in certain ways. Yeah. Sports are so malleable and fluid. Yeah. And athletes are obviously individuals with yeah. agency. Yeah. And so given specific context and given what the nation state might need yeah. at various points yeah. and yeah. given the power of sports to manipulate people's feelings and emotions, yeah. you rearrange the pieces. Yeah. Yeah. And you have athletes of color doing lots of different things in different yeah. contexts, creating yeah. politics in subtly different ways. Yeah. yeah. Um, that there's, I don't think we have an umbrella theory yeah. for it. Yeah. Which obviously brings us back to post structuralism and power. As does everything. <laughs> um, I think we're done. Yeah. Um, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, let us know if you did. Let us know if you didn't. Uh, rate us, review us on iTunes, tweet at us, tell us what you think, and we will catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Well, well.